You are now listening to the Power of My Identity podcast featuring dialogues from the diaspora. The Power of My Identity podcast is a platform dedicated to teaching women on how they can use their identity, cultural upbringings, and uniqueness as a tool to thrive in their careers, build businesses, develop authentic relationships, live, love, and laugh, all while navigating this crazy journey we call life. How do we do it? Fairly simple. By facilitating thought-provoking conversations with professionals, influencers, change agents, and local heroes. I'm your host, your girl, Oribosa Owi. Let's jump into this week's episode. Greetings and welcome to episode 12 on the Power of My Identity podcast, featuring dialogues from the diaspora. I'm your host, Dr. Oribosa Owi, and tonight's conversation is really special. We'll be talking about sex trafficking, rape, and the failed protection of African girls and women. And joining me in the conversation tonight is one of my really good friends. Her name is Professor Sudi Ikarintubi. She is a clinical scientist, but also a woman who has advocated for various social injustices to be changed, both here on the grounds in the U.S. and internationally. And so I felt that she would have been the absolutely great person to have the conversation with tonight. But before we get into our conversation, I just wanted to share my thoughts and shed light about the series of events that have been happening both here on the grounds in the U.S. and internationally. Most recently, we heard about the killing of George Floyd. And to be honest with you, I couldn't even watch the video in its entirety because I didn't want to see that man die like that to know that he literally had the life pressed out of him truly saddens my heart and really makes me angry. Now, I'm never a person to be fearful because I truly believe in God. But when I was watching the parts of the videos that I seen, all I can think about is that, damn, I have brothers. I have four brothers. I have nephews. I have a brother-in-law. I have friends who are males that I love dearly. And I would be so heartbroken to know that one of my brothers or my nephews would have been a victim of police brutality, a victim of a hate crime. And then to make matters worse, to hear about a young lady by the name of Uwa who comes from the place that my dad hails from, Edo State, a place that I call my second home, She was a student at a university that I often do guest lectures at, Unibin, where I host different youth empowerment events, encouraging them to do the same thing that Uwa was doing, to stay focused in their studies. And so to find out that she was brutally murdered and raped has made me truly sad. And just to know that we have a system that has failed not only African women, but people of color. And so tonight, I want our conversation to really resonate with you. And please do not feel offended because we're only talking about women in Africa. It is a place that we can relate to, both myself and Sudi, because we are indigents from an African country. I'm a first-generation Nigerian-American Sudi is a first-generation Sierra Leonean, and so that's where we're speaking from. But if you are a woman who are of color living in the diaspora or living in the Caribbean or living in Europe, it doesn't mean that you're excluding or that we are excluding you from the topic. We know that rape can happen to anyone. 
even males. But the conversation tonight is just a start. And it's not the end all be all, but something to just bring to the forefront. Because when we talk about the state of women, when we talk about the state of black people in, in its entirety, we know that time is of the essence and that we have to take action now. I'm truly, if I, I'm really, really, truly just disgusted that I live in a country where the leader is a person, is the number one person igniting hate, is the number one person giving directives for white supremacists and people who believe in racism to attack us black people because of the color of our skin. Or as a woman to know that we are at a greater risk to being raped in traffic. It's just sad, it's truly sad. And so I hope tonight for each and every listener that's tuning in, that it resonate in your heart, but it also encourages you to just start today, take action. It doesn't have to be monumental, share a post, connect with an organization, people who are who have been doing this work of advocacy for social injustices, advocacy for protecting women and providing resources to women who have been raped, who have been in domestic violence situations, who have been trafficked. Please just reach out to them. Ask where you can help. That's the starting point. And so without further ado, Let's jump into tonight's episode. You are now tuning in to the Power of My Identity podcast. Greetings, Sudi, and welcome to the PMI guest chair. How are you? I am doing well, Arabosa. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me in such a timely conversation. It's a must-have conversation. And so before we jump into our talk, can you let my listeners know who you are, your background, because you are definitely a powerhouse woman. Yeah, so um, I I mean, of course, I always love talking to you. Um, (laughs) I, I just think that we have to do so under such circumstances, you know, with everything that's going on around the world today, but, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And we've been, you know, fortunate enough to be in spaces where we can, you know, act as allies and advocates for for people to, you know, stand up and be a voice um, for those that may sometimes be overlooked. And we have an opportunity to spread news to our networks about injustice, social injustices that are going on around the world. Um, so my my background, you asked to, um, to just summarize it briefly, I'm a social scientist by training. Um, and as a social work practitioner and international social work practitioner, um, I've uh, worked around the world in areas where marginalized and at-risk communities um, uh, experience various things like poverty, trauma, violence, and so on and so forth. So I completed an internship, um, a master's internship in Nigeria 
with um, a NGO organization called the Center for Enterprise Development and Action Research in Ibadan, Nigeria. Um, and I've also completed international work in um, India and um, in other spaces, uh, the Caribbean and other international places. So, you know, my work has, has oftentimes been, you know, listening to community members, listening to their experiences, listening to solutions that they propose to experiences that they might be having and formalizing solutions that are um, uh, created by them and for them um, as a voice and then bringing uh, global connections together to help amplify that work. And so currently I um, serve as a, a clinical assistant professor of social work at the University of South Carolina. Um, but I continue to do work in partnership in various areas um, like Nigeria. I continue to work with the Center for Enterprise Development and Action Research, um, continuing to identify areas of need and where, where we can um, use the diaspora and global connections to uh, assist communities. So that's the long and short of my, my background. Yeah, you know, and Sudi and I, we actually met uh, in my role at the UNA group. So before I became the director, we were just serving as board members. And then she was one of the people who supported that I transitioned into the leadership part because I was like, mm, you know, do I want to lead this? Yeah. <laughs> and um, it really speaks to what you stand for, you know, about empowering women of color, women of African descent, but even just Africans in the diaspora to be in positions to speak on and be change major makers to take action, you know, be those decision makers to help us kind of streamline the message. Because when we hear stories of what has been happening over the last week, it is truly disturbing. And to know with just the young lady, Uwa, that is like in my backyard. Like I cried when I heard such a story because I guest lecture at Uniben pretty much frequently. And so to know a young lady was raped, brutalized, because she just had this passion to develop her education, even in the downtime. It's something that, you know, we have to let the world know that that's not okay. Then coming home, just being in the U.S. and seeing just killings, useless killings of yeah. us as Black people, it has to stop, you know? And I know that we are just two women, but I, I think the conversation or action happens when you start to talk about the conversation and have other people listen in. So I am truly happy that we are going to talk tonight because yeah. it, it's just sad, you know? It's just a sad thing, you know? As Black people, I feel like we always have to fight We just for our yeah. existence. <laughs> it's yeah. just just for our existence to prove we have to work 10 times harder to prove to our counterparts that we are more than worthy and, and well qualified to do any type of job well qualified to speak on these topics well qualified just to go about our normal life you know so my right. first question to you is really wow because tonight's conversation is really focused on the African woman and the members in the African diaspora. What do you believe is, what are your thoughts on the current state of African women as we can see it from on the grounds in Africa and here in the diaspora? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I come from an African woman. I come from um, an African grandmother, great grandmother. Um, and I have seen the um, how hard African women um, work in the background. Um, and I've seen the evolution of the African woman and the African woman in the diaspora um, to moving from the shadows and the background to moving in the forefront. So although this is a very troubling and sad conversation, as you mentioned, because of what has happened to Uwa, what has happened to Tina, what has happened to countless African you know, women who've been violated, um, and also even in the diaspora globally, what's happened to Breonna Taylor, you know, um, and, and I think that um, this conversation is, is really timely on so many levels because I think that the state of the African woman is one that is evolving. And I think much of what um, has been said about what's taking place around the world today um, has to be largely attributed towards social media and the ability and use of cameras and videos and recordings to give image to what has been going on for so long. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's one point is that this state of the African woman is not something that is new. It's something that is evolved. It is something that is coming to the forefront and all of the issues, both the, the violence and the prejudice the sexism and everything is something that has um, been around and that uh, we are um, continuing to get opportunities to uh, learn more about it, learn more about the stories and the impacts um, that it's having on communities and to be able to respond in real time. Um, and so the state of the African woman is one that is uh, both um, targeted, but both also resilient and fighting and strong-willed. And the African woman in the diaspora um, is, experience, is experiencing some of these uh, same challenges that African women and the girl child experience on the continent. Um, and we are also, as women in the diaspora, getting the opportunity to uh, speak up and shed light on what's going on. Like this platform that you've created as an African woman of the diaspora to give voice to women in the diaspora and connect that voice back to issues that are impacting the continent. And we don't take that privilege lightly. And so I commend you on you know, using your privilege and using your voice and using this technology. This podcast is another piece of technology that gives voice to people that would have otherwise been marginalized if not that you had to wait on a news outlet to give you an opportunity to speak up and speak out on behalf of girls and women. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Um, when yeah. I created the podcast, I know that in addition to all of our celebratory moments, we as women, particularly, we've gone through trauma. 
And it, it has started, as you said, before us, our parents, our great grandparents, our great grandmothers, great, 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 and, you know, just down our lineage. And I, I feel like for African women, particularly, we're often taught to be silent. You know, we're often taught to just be seen, but not heard. And I just wanted to create a platform where we are also seen, but also heard and know that we deal with real issues and, and like just going through sex trafficking, rape. I mean, it's a big topic and we can only do so much in the little time that we have together to explore it. But this is something that has been happening for years Yes. Yeah, centuries, you know, mm-hmm. centuries from the beginning of time. Yeah. But does it mean that it's okay? Is it right? And so for me, my next question to you is, why do you believe that we as African women are at a higher risk of being sexually trafficked and raped? Yeah, so so you you really hit the, um, the, the nail on the head with your initial comment um, about the, the issues facing um, African women, particular, particularly with regard to violence. This has been around for quite some time. And I, I want to um, point out a quote that I had heard this, this past week or two weeks. I think Will Smith you know, made a quote about racism that I'd like to um, apply to our conversation today about sexism. Um, which is, you know, it's not that sexism hasn't been around. It's that it's now being filmed. Mm-hmm. So we're now seeing social media platforms, people with cell phones um, and video cameras. Um, I was just on a few social media platforms today. What has happened as a result of the um, the story of Uwa and um, other uh African women who have been violated coming to the forefront this past week, even more women are coming out to tell their tales in their childhoods about being molested and being raped. And so, you know, to your question about the why, I think um, as members of the diaspora, that why is what we need to endeavor to explore. And like you said, we can't do it all in this conversation. So I think why it's happened is because we potentially uh, may have ignored uh, what's been going on. Um, I think that uh, we need to take a step back and we need to look at the, the history and the research on the ground in the continent. Um, our local researchers and practitioners and community advocates who have been trying to give voice to this topic. So I look forward to this being the first of many conversations about the why. And I look forward to us giving voice and lending voice to those advocates um, and community members that have been doing this work for years and for centuries to give voice and shed light on what the girl child and young girls and women in Africa have been facing with regard to violence. So I think there are many, you know, reasons or factors that we can talk about that may contribute towards the the treatment that African women have have experienced and are continuing to experience. And part of that could be you know, sexism or is sexism. You know, I don't want to say could be, but at the same time, I just want to err on the fact, like, you know, I I mentioned earlier that we need to 
give voice to the advocates and researchers that have been doing this work who have researched the why. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so I think we need to look at sexism. I think we need to look at culture. We need to look at um, socialization. So how are we socialized as African women? Um, how are we reared? And, you know, it starts in looking at our own homes, looking around us. You know, you and I also, as I come from an African mother, I also come from an African father. You know, we come from African fathers. And so how are we raised as girls? And more importantly, how do we observe our fathers and men in our life treating women? And so this becomes a mirrored conversation mm. when we talk about the why. Because we talk about our own doorsteps we talk about our own households. We talk about our own communities and how um, the treatment of women and how women are seen starts from home and how that then permeates into our communities and in our societies and how we are socialized as individuals to see women. And so I think part of the reason that African women are experiencing violence right now um, speaks to a socialization of the, the, uh, of the boy, of the man, and a socialization of um, girls and women. And I want to air our conversation on a focus of the men, because I think our why has always focus on the women as victims and hasn't done enough of focusing on the perpetrators. In this conversation about rape, rape culture, sexism in Africa, there must be a focus on the perpetrators and why um, perpetrators are engaging in these activities. Raping small children, raping girls, violently killing them. We need to find that out. We need to, um, in our why, explore why men are silent about mm -hmm. this. That th Those are the whys that we need to look at. Why the actions are taking place, why the men are engaging in them, and then why uh, men who can serve as the prime ad, uh, you know, advocate and ally to women uh, remain silent or are ignored if they do speak out. And so um, I'm, I'm sorry to answer that question with a potential, <laughs> with potentially another question, but I think our why starts with socialization and child rearing as a culture. And the why it's happening is because we've been focusing too much on victims and not enough on perpetrators. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a great way to answer the question because the, the topic is really multifaceted and at times very highly complex. And we, to explore or just the starting point, I agree with you, it starts at home. You know, how are you positioned in your home? How are you seen as a child, a girl child in your home? And, and I've been on the grounds and um, 
visited different people of different social classes and children of different social classes. And no matter what social class, women, particularly on the grounds in Nigeria, I can only speak about Nigeria, we are seen as second class compared to men. It's like the men, what they say, it's often never questioned. It's right. And even when it's not right, and for you as a woman to speak up against it, you are seen as a troublemaker. And one, someone who's coming to cause issue. And I've personally faced my own fair share of this type of discrimination because I was a woman. And I just was very thankful that although I didn't have an African mother, a Nigerian mother, I had an African-American mother who taught me to stand firm in my beliefs, to speak up even when it wasn't right. But not everyone has privilege to that opportunities, particularly women. And just to see that even when you go to a particular place, women can't sit here because of the notion she has a menstruation. But you don't have a problem engaging in sexual activity with the same woman who menstruates. You know, mm-hmm. so I just think that it's just an mm-hmm. unjust way of how women has been positioned in society. And of course, starting at home. You know, when I was on the grounds, there's in Bini, actually, there's something called the Red Light District. And me, you know, at that time in 2007, my dad was doing politics. And as a girl who was just like, I need to make the best of this time that I'm here living in Nigeria, I wanted to really learn the culture. And when I heard about the red light district, I couldn't believe it. But I thought also, I was like, okay, maybe these women, they want to go into sex trafficking. I mean, prostitution, that's what they want to do. But when I actually started speaking to these women and knowing that they were put in to a situation by their parents, it really just opened my eyes. That as times as a girl child, you have no power, you have no voice, you have no authority. And so I think that's a part of the why. When your parents have positioned you, not all, but put you in places where you are more vulnerable to experience being trafficked, to being experienced to being raped, and then being raped by members in your own family. That like that's just another a layer to it, and mm-hmm. you know we laugh and joke about it like oh you have a sleazy uncle, but mm-hmm. the sleazy uncle at any time he can really act on what he wants to mm-hmm. act on if the time is right, you know. And so I just yeah. think the why it, you have to ask like follow up questions or these continuous questions to truly get to a answer and to know that the answer is just not one thing. Right. And so definitely for sharing that. And it leads into my next question. So we know that, yes, African women there at times we are at a higher risk of being sexually trafficked and raped. But what are some of the challenges that we are facing as African women that you believe if the right tools and resources were provided, it would better position us not to be raped? It would better position us not to be um, sex trafficked because we understand our challenges. And I think for many women on the grounds, they don't know that these are challenges for themselves. So if you can just talk about a few challenges that you may think is the reason why they face being higher uh, or at a higher risk of being trafficked or raped or even just maltreated as a woman, that would be great because I think that connection helps a woman on the ground who is experiencing something like this and hears this and say, you know what? Oh yeah, that I'm going through that. And as a result of listening to the podcast, I recognize that I need to get help. 
Yeah, I think I think um, there are two things um, that I want to begin to speak to in a myriad of things. Like I think you highlighted this before that these issues are really complex and this conversation is just a glimpse and just a first look at really complex issues. So the two things that I want to initially highlight on top of others um, you know, that, that could be brought up are poverty and education. Um, uh, it's been said by uh, various international networks that the life expectancy of a child rests within the education of the mother and the capacity of the mother. And so when you have um, mothers whose education is limited on top of being impoverished, this, lends, this, this begins an initial lending of increasing the likelihood that, um, that violence and sexual trafficking and the like become a part of this family's experience. And so um, these two challenges remain at the forefront for why human trafficking and violence and sexual maltreatment and why things like the red light district may persist because these are um, the very limited opportunities that individuals are presented with, with within which to um, you know, make a, provide means for themselves and their families. Um, I think that uh, we have seen historically in Africa where the girl child has um, been uh, discouraged, if not kept from being formally educated. Um, and we have seen, um, you know, where uh, child marriages, um, or other uh, trafficking instances may have contributed towards um, them being a part of the culture. We, we've seen a culture where women are used as house help and being placed in vulnerable situations um, at young ages. We have seen that poverty in neighboring countries lends itself to people seeking out opportunities elsewhere when the infrastructure and opportunity is not available to them, they are then trafficked to other countries as house help and you know, families are being presented with opportunities whereby they are told that their child will be educated and will be supported and helped. And then these girls are, are you know, entering into um, uh, homes where they're maltreated or they're trafficked by and large. And so I think that, you know, poverty is a, a huge contributor to what we're seeing, you know, happening right now. But going back to, you know, um, Uwa and her situation, from what I'm told and what we've seen, you know, she was in a sanctuary, a church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when she was brutally raped and murdered. So when we say, you know, poverty and education, how did poverty and how might poverty and education have lended itself 
in that situation or scenario. Mm. You know, when she was a university student. So then I think a third part that I would again add to that challenge is the challenge of, um, of poverty as an experience and violence as an experience of others. So I'm going to say that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And this is by no means in, a, in any way to excuse behaviors of individuals, but it is to explain. And I think, again, we need to have a focus on the perpetrators. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what are the challenges that these individuals that engaged in this heinous act towards her, what were they dealing with mm. that contributed to them acting so violently towards her? Mm -hmm. And I've had some conversations with, because I think, again, this conversation needs to be with men, about men, and for men. So I, in my, you know, um, exploration of this topic even further, am beginning to have conversations with men about this topic of rape and rape culture. And so what is it? What are the challenges? What's, what, what are the challenges that men are experiencing that's lending itself for them to violate small girl ch children and girls and women? And um, in some of the beginning responses that I'm beginning to get, there has been this conversation about mental health and mental illness exploration. Mm. And so I think that we need to explore that and have a conversation to see if, in fact, in Africa, um, the, you know, and, and, I, and I don't think we, we, we need to generalize this to, you know, as you mentioned, you were talking specifically about Nigeria. I don't think we need to make generalizations across the continent. But I think we do need to explore, in the case of Nigeria, is mental health and mental illness a challenge that is contributing towards the rape and violent treatment and perceptions of women and the girl child? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with you. And, and when I think back to just the Uwa story, like I said, that that's to me a very, it, it made me cry because I was like, she was in a church, a place where we say it's safe and mm -hmm. access you know, when we look at the poverty component and things that here, you know, I tell my students this all the time, be grateful that you have an opportunity to be learn from the comfort of your home. And the fact that she had to go out because maybe she didn't have a laptop or she doesn't have a internet connection that allows her to in, in consume knowledge and inhale knowledge as she waits in this down period because Unibin is closed at this time. And so as she, the initiative that she was taking to say, you know what, let me continue furthering my education. Even when we have a down moment, let me go to a place where I deem safe and to see that the way they really raped her and, and killed her is unfathomable, but it goes to your point that hurt people hurt people. And it leads to the next point of men too. They've gone through their own experience of sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. And that sexual mm -hmm. trauma can be explored as you were forced to engage in sexual acts before the time you were ready to prove your manhood. You mm -hmm. know, when I 
see a lot of men and just see their, you know, knowing their patterns. And R. Kelly is like the classic case. He was raped and Mm -hmm. no one was there for him. No one gave him the support that he needed. And so that incident that has happened to him has now spiraled out of control. And he's looking for authority because someone took it away from him. And so every other victim that was after that or engaged in sexual activity with R. Kelly, and I'm just using him because we know it, know him, is a, a victim now because someone took away his innocence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an issue that we don't talk about. You know, I've, I've had a friend who explained to me that, you know, in Nigeria, this male-on-male or homosexual activity is nothing new. It's just now they're feeling more empowered to speak up. But all of these, you know, high authority people, they too are liking the same sex and um, have been violating men on the low. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with you. I agree that hurt people hurt people. And it's not about giving them an excuse, but really looking at the depth of human existence mm-hmm. and that we are social beings and that mm-hmm. when we are hurt, we don't, if we don't have an outlet to channel these emotions and progress and, and heal through it, we can mm-hmm. become very dangerous to society. We can. I think you said a lot there. I think that, you know, as, as you, as you mentioned, um, that this is not an attempt to excuse people's behavior, but it is to explain it because we have to ask ourselves, what is our goal in having this conversation? What do we want to see going forward so that justice for UWA doesn't turn into a countless number of other hashtags continuing this conversation of say no to rape 10 years from now? And it's not to say that we're trying to solve it in this very conversation, but it is saying that we're trying to um, attempt to understand and talk about factors and explore factors that contribute to people's behavior. And one other thing that I want to highlight as part of this conversation is, you know, again, there needs to be a focus on perpetrators and why perpetrators are engaging in these types of Um, behaviors uh, with regard to rape and um, murder. And in that conversation, um, I I don't want to, because you you highlighted this this fact that, you know, individuals that may have engaged engaged in these behaviors have themselves may been a part of sexual trauma in their experience. And so in acknowledging that, I do want us to begin to ask the question to explore Um, You know, what's the data around this, you know, um, in the U.S. as part of the as part of the diaspora, the U.S. begins to look at trauma and sexual experiences and who's the more likely to um, experience this trauma and who's the more likely to be a perpetrator. And so in the U.S., it's more likely that it is men, not to say because, again, we could have people, you know, in this conversation say, well, women rape, too. Well, yes, they do. They They do. do. (laughs) But let's specifically look at how much more likely it is to happen and where we are seeing, um, where are we seeing it more likely to happen? And then let there be another conversation about women raping men Mm. or individuals uh, raping or molesting or maltreating young boys, you know, but I think as part of this conversation, it becomes really important for us not to 
see this conversation, have this conversation and begin to get in arguments or conflict because I've been quietly just paying attention to how this topic has been playing out Mm -hmm. socially because I think as social scientists, it's very important for us to sit back and look at how the community is experiencing this topic and see what we have going on. So we see victim blaming that's going on. You know, we see where there's where they may say, oh, you shouldn't be at this place. Oh, you shouldn't wear this. Oh, you shouldn't. And we know that that's victim blaming. and We know that that's Mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on the individuals that engage in the act in and of itself. And let's find out why they're engaging in these acts. What are their life experiences? Are, Are they frustrated? Have they themselves had some uh, unresolved childhood traumas and you know what if any rehabilitation accountability punishment measures are put into place because another thing that I think contributes to the conversation about sexual maltreatment of girls and women is accountability mm-hmm. when there is no accountability when it's well let's push it under the rug let's Um, pay this off. Let's do that. And I've just been looking at the countless stories of people that have felt empowered to come out and tell their own stories of being sexually assaulted. There is also some classism that's coming into play Mm -hmm. where people feel like they can violate others. Like the power dynamic is also financial because you see individuals as having less money, being of less class, you feel empowered to engage in behavior because if you're caught or if anyone should suspect, you can pay them off. You can pay the family not to prosecute mm-hmm. and hold individuals accountable. So these are these are things, these are challenges that I think we need to engage the continent. We need to engage Nigeria. Um, Sierra Leone, Ghana, individual countries, because I think every individual country is unique. And even within every in every country, you know, every municipality, every city, every town is going to have a different take. But I think that we need to begin to empower individual communities to start having these really tough conversations that for, for many of us in culture are considered taboo. And we don't want to talk about it. We'd rather sweep it under the rug because there's shame associated with it. So we need to pull back that lens, still provide people the opportunity to, um, to share their story in the way that they see fit. I don't think that individuals need to be made to feel that they have to come forward and publicly say that they've been molested or raped in order for us to hold individuals accountable or for us to change the narrative or for us to change the experience and what's happening. We need to provide various outlets for people that include those that are anonymous, that allow people to divulge and share and receive support, help, and most of all, justice and accountability so that this does not repeat itself over and over. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And even I would just say that to just 
give some kudos, but now more of the TV shows that you're seeing coming across, particularly on the continent, they support these kind of topics. Like there's a show on Netflix called Castle and Castle, and it's a law firm and they explore um, early childhood marriages and fighting on why that is not right. And just the power of giving up women's voices. And just to your point of, Ooh, I was talking to my dad yesterday and he said he was so disgusted with someone he had talked to because the person was like, oh, Uwa called it onto herself. She's a pretty girl. She must know those boys from somewhere. And because they, she was probably dating multiple, multiple of them, that's why they came to punish her. And I said, you should ask him because I know the person has a daughter. If they did that to your daughter, would you be okay with it? Yeah. 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 And this is yet another example, like you, like, like we talked about before, of victim blaming and instead focusing on the victim instead of focusing on the perpetrators. There is no excuse. It does not matter, you know, what her prior history was or relation to anyone. And to suspect her before you suspect the very individuals that com committed the heinous act is part of the learned challenge um, that we need to begin to explore, um, uh, 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 not only in Nigeria or Africa, you know, but uh, as as a as a society as a whole, we see that a lot. We've seen that in a lot of the uprisings that are taking place around the world that oftentimes these individuals are first scrutinized. It's, well, what did they do to bring this on? You know? Um, and I think that uh, that is a mindset, right? That's a socialization that we need to begin to look at and dismantle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And it goes to my next question because we we've leading into systems. You know, I believe the system has failed African girls, African women, women of color in general. The system has failed us in multiple ways. And my question to you is, how do we put things in place to start strength or restoring or even creating a system? Because I don't believe that we probably have a system that was worth even restoring. But how do we start to create systems yeah. and, uh, and leverage our resources to support the security and safety of women particularly yeah. women of color because it doesn't mean if you're not on the ground here in america we have the same issues and i yeah. think that's why it's very important for us as african women in the diaspora to talk about it because on the grounds they have this misconception oh like america is is better because of this this and that no listen i'm over here rather i rather had dealt with tribalism than racism any day <laughs> any day i'd rather be in nigeria right now where i know as a black woman if i go on the street nobody's going to come and just shoot me down because i'm a black woman we're all black and we believe in jungle justice to no matter who you are that's what i know about nigerians but <laughs> we believe in that jungle justice white man asian man it don't matter right but what what can we do to start creating a system that really protects women of color. I think what we do is we need to amplify amplify the voices of those that have been doing the work. So mm -hmm. NGOs that are on the ground in Nigeria, and I cannot highlight, celebrate, or big up enough 
organizations like the Center for Enterprise Development and Action Research that I had the opportunity to work with in Ibadan. We need to amplify these organizations that are on the ground um, working, doing this work in communities that, and, and have been historically doing this work in communities for years because this isn't a new issue. And so they've seen and they understand and they've worked. And so this is an opportunity for us to lend our power, our voice and our strength to be ethical in our way of addressing um, this issue of rape, rape culture, violence and sexism that's taking place right now, that's going on right now. And so I think what we do is we identify those NGOs that are doing ethical, effective and efficient work to the best of their ability. And we continue and we add resources to what they are doing in order to solve the, 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 the issue from the inside out. Because I think that, um, you know, oftentimes what can sometimes happen is you get your justice for UI hashtag you get your, you know, your hashtag up for a week to two weeks, and then people go back to work as usual. But a lot of these NGOs, organizations, clinics, and communities, they're, they're, they're committed to doing this work. And so I think to help support our commitment and to help bring us up to speed, you know, because before any of us could start to do this work, we would have to go so far back. And so far down and deep, but with some, there, there, there are organizations that have already done this and they know and they understand the lay of the land. And so I think that what we need to do is we need to um, outreach to um, individuals and organizations that have been doing this work. We need to vet, assess and hear out how they've gone about doing this work. Um, and we need to join forces. We need to join forces with them. Um, I think that we need to continue to do what we are doing with our social media platforms. Globalization and the media presence has done wonders in bringing to light the social injustices um, like this rape and murder that have been going on for centuries. But now that we're able to lay bare these heinous acts, on social media platforms for people to see in real time, feel in real time, deal with in real time. Now, you know, we need to, to move from just the display to action. And we need to make sure that these actions are intentional. We need to make sure that these actions are culturally competent. And it's funny that you mentioned tribalism because tribalism is something that we um, need to acknowledge and use to our benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And being solutions to these challenges. Because, you know, work in Kaduna, Lagos, Ibadan, and, you know, Benin, various places is going to differ. There's not one broad stroke solution that that might work, you know, but I do think collectively, once we're able to do individual efforts, setting up a national effort, um, then needs to come into place. Then an international effort that can be used as a best practice for regional countries that helps to address the human trafficking aspects that then expands into other areas is very helpful. And I think that that's a major step.
but I want to reiterate the importance of us giving um, you know, credence to the people that have been doing this work long before us and being able to identify those organizations to see how we can rally and support their efforts is a really important first step. Yeah. And if you're in Jamaica, because I know we have a few Jamaican listeners, um, I, an NGO I know of that supports this type of work for women and women who have been in domestic violent situations, mm-hmm. rape, um, Women's Inc. Um, they're located in Kingston, Jamaica. I know the work that they have done, and they've been doing this for a long time, I think since 1980s. And it just goes back to our point that this is nothing new. It's just that we now are leveraging social media and access to capture when corruption is happening, when violence is happening, and put it, disseminate out there into the world quicker than we can blink our eye. Because I can be honest with you, if we didn't have social media, I don't think we would have heard about the Uwe situation because it's from a place where it's not often advertised there. You know, you may hear of a dope state and you think about the palace. And even in that whole structure of, of our uh, royal kingdom, you know, hot, you know, a lot of hot, hot stuff goes on in there as well. You know, I, I've been to the palace and, you know, just to see some of the things that are exchanged as it relates or their ideology as it relates to women. It's just like, OK, <laughs> yeah. alarming, you know, but people will stand behind it because it says that's a part of our culture. Yeah. But yeah. does it make it right? No. And when it comes to your own child, if you were in the Uwa's mother's shoes, her parents' shoes, would you say the same thing? Yeah, yeah. You know, all these other people who are dying, would you say the the same thing? No, because it hits differently when it's in your backyard. And so with my last question to you, because for us as members in the diaspora, we often hear people saying, okay, you guys need to get involved. You need to go back on the grounds and help out. But for many of us, we know that there are challenges for us to give help. It's not always received. We don't know where to start. And so my question to you is that what can we really do? What are some practical things that we can do where even if we don't have access to go back home, we know COVID and everything is around, but from our just household, from our bedroom, wherever we're sitting, what can we begin to do to advocate that change has to come? And support the change that needs to come. Yeah, yeah. So I think one one thing as a diaspora that that we need to do comes on the heels of the advocacy that took place for the Chibok girls. You'll recall that part of the momentum behind uh, what took place to really quickly and speedily um, a, a, a attempt to address the issue of their abduction was you had some individuals of the diaspora in the U.S. using their social media platforms and their voice to organize and rally and encourage international communities to step up and call on, um, you know, national, local, and, and and other officials to support efforts to um, bring the bring the girls back. And I think that we in the diaspora need to look at similar movements, like we need to look at, celebrate, and and address any of the areas that took place with that movement and see if we can mirror it as a best practice with um, efforts to address 
um, sexism, rape culture, um, human trafficking of girls and women, you know, in, in Nigeria. And I think that the diaspora needs to identify, as I've said before, I cannot reiterate enough um, how we need to rally behind organizations on the ground you know, help them build their capacities, help them formalize infrastructure and, um, and and efforts to be more visible about the work that they're doing. Maybe they're doing some grassroots work that they don't have a communication system. That maybe they don't even have an Instagram page to talk about the work that they're doing and to connect individuals that want to provide resource support. I just saw a campaign yesterday where the um the the for George Floyd's daughter, they've raised close to a million dollars just for her. Yes. How much talk about how much they raised for his um legal defense fund? Mm-hmm. So what if we in the diaspora formed a GoFundMe page to and 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 recall now as a diaspora that we are seeing the social justice movements in the U.S. are successful because finance resource and support is being made available. Mm. There was a second autopsy that had to take place in the George Floyd incident because there was, you know, you know, government cover-up um, based on the local um, autopsy that uh, was, was provided. Um, and so what if we are able to suggest and provide um, some additional resource supports that will allow Uwa's family and other families like Uwa to seek justice for themselves and their families. So um, I think that in the diaspora, we can help amplify the voices of individuals that are on the ground doing the work. We um, can ask them what they need. Um, and provide them the supports and resources. We can also lend our voice to make suggestions on what is needed. But I, I just really want us to err on the fact that, that you know, we don't, because we know ourselves as African women and African women living in the U.S., you know, how oftentimes others who have intentions, positive intentions of, of helping you know, may not fully be listening to what we are saying, you know? And so I think it's very important for us to provide a listening ear. And that's why I'm just so proud of this platform that you've created. And I think that we should use platforms like these to give voice to individuals on the ground, to come on podcasts like these and talk about what's going on in the ground, you know, Um, and talk about what people are doing on the ground to address it and to rally behind those efforts. I love that idea of, you know, creating some type of financial resource fund because the things that we face in the ground when we think about government cover-up and even just corruption, we know that as you can see, for those of you who are on the grounds, we have those kind of same issues. It's just now, once again, the power of social media, the power of just news reporters who are tired of this nonsense as well, who are speaking up, that if we don't have money, money helps the process. But to go and say, okay, hey, we want to collect money to go back to Nigeria, and we don't have a place 
that it can to see where the money is being used that's the cause for people not to just do support the, the initiative or to donate so i love the fact that you know here on the grounds maybe putting something like a gofundme campaign together where we know it's controlled here but it will be managed in a way to provide resources and assistance to seek that justice you know for Uwe and for anybody else who's going through this you know yeah. um, you know there are more stories untold than yeah. are told right but Sudi my final spiel to you because I think this conversation was very good and and I just thank you for <laughs> your expertise you know this is my good friend but lending your expertise to the topic and she's from Sierra Leone you guys okay yeah. so, <laughs> um, what with everything that is going on with social inequality particularly as it relates to what women, does the word identity mean to you and why is it important for women of color to embrace their identity and culture Wow, identity means being able to be to be your true self and to um, show your true self without fear of malice, um, without fear of judgment or prejudice. That's identity to me. Um, and what? And can you repeat the second part of your question? Sure. And why is it so important for them to embrace their identity and culture? It is so important for us to embrace our identities and culture, um, because uh, as humans, we evolve, and our identities both celebrate and continue to move forward legacies of our culture that remain uh, important and critical to you know, who we are as individuals. And so it becomes important then for us to remain true to that as part of our own cultural experience and, and evolving it. Um, because I don't think that culture is something that is stagnant. I think it is something that that evolves over time as people evolve in their identities. And I think that as we encourage people to celebrate and be their true selves, um, that we both retain those things that continue to be a strong foothold in who we are, that give us peace, that give us resolve, that give us strength, um, that give us cause to celebrate um, and that can and that encourage us to continue to be our best selves. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Sudi, for your contribution today. There is more from Sudi. Can you just let us know how do we keep in touch with you on social media? Because you've been sharing some awesome information as well about mobilizing action and where you can start. So if you can just drop your social media handle for us. Yeah. So I um, continue to be a part of efforts, um, no matter how small or how slow or how big to um, support communities. One project um, that I have continued to work on is how we can use um, poverty alleviation tools. You recall earlier that I spoke to one of the contributing factors or challenges that women often face as being poverty. 
and, and uh, lack of education or inability to have opportunity and access to education. And so one of the projects that continues to be near and dear to me and where people can find me is through my work um, with an organization called the International Coalition for African Fashion or ICAF for short. This is an organization that gives voice and space and opportunity to um, African and African inspired artisans to use their gifts and their arts and their crafts to generate revenue for themselves. So people can find me um, on social media um, at, at ICAF, I-C-A-F underscore Africa. I love it. Well, thank you. You are welcome. No, thank you for doing this, Orbo. So this is awesome work and you're planting seeds and I look forward to this being a continued conversation um, and a continued effort. It's really important. It's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode on the Power of My Identity podcast featuring dialogues from the diaspora. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with today's guest and I hope, better yet, I know you did too. Just one more thing before you head out for the day, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a like and or testimonial as this really, really, really helps other women in the diaspora find the show. If you'd like to connect with me, you can head over to Instagram and follow me at orabosa underscore leads, which is spelled O-R-O, be like boy, O-S-A underscore leads, or you can connect with me on my website, orabosaowe.com. If you sign up on my mailing list this year, I have some amazing tips that are providing women on how to really negotiate their salaries to get paid their value and their worth. And so if you really want some information about that, definitely sign up on my mailing list. Once again, thank you for tuning in and I look forward to connecting with you next week.